if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, we're going to be in verse 6. So we're going to continue uh, the series that we've been in, talking about the different names of God. Um, Greg is out of town. He is in New Mexico preaching at a church out there. Uh, where I think some of his family is, so they invited him to come out. So uh, he gave me the hardest uh, name of God to pronounce. Um, our name today is Jehovah Sidkenu, and uh, if you don't know how to pr- pronounce that or spell it, I don't blame you, uh, but Jehovah Sidkenu uh, is, is what our, our name is today, and, and it's, it's a beautiful name of God. It's a beautiful uh, description of who he is, um, and and even though it was very difficult to figure out how to pronounce, I'm very excited to, to get to talk about it today. So Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6, it says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. I'm going to read it again. In his days Judah will be saved, And Israel will live securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So to give you a little bit bit of backstory in Jeremiah, uh, so currently in Jeremiah chapter 23, the king uh, is Zedekiah. Um, So if uh, you've ever heard that name before, King Zedekiah uh, is not a great king. He is um, the last king really, uh, of Israel, um, and he did not do a great job. Um, a couple of generations before him, we, we have King Josiah, uh, and King Josiah is considered the last good king of Israel, um, at least uh, a human king. Um, that is not Jesus Christ, our ultimate king. Uh, so Josiah was a good king, and then after Josiah died, his uh, son, uh, Jehoaz, took over, um, and the Bible talks about Jehoaz as somebody who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, and, and that's kind of crazy because he was only king for three months. He was not king for very long, but it is, it is told that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And after the, within the three months that he was king, he was removed by the Pharaoh of Egypt of the time um, and then replaced by his brother, uh, Jehokim. And he also was considered somebody who did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was the king of Israel when they were taken captive by Babylon. Um, and it is told about him that he did not fear God. So in, in, in all of this time, there are people, um, judges and prophets that have a word from God and speak to these kings. And these kings did not listen. They did not obey. They did not fear what God was telling them. So Jehokim, when he died, his son, uh, Jehochin, uh, took over. And again, it is said that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, He, as well, was taken captive by the Babylonians uh, within the first three months of his reign. And so, again, just three months, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we get to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon. Uh, He thought, okay, I'm going to team up with Egypt, uh, who ruled us before and now doesn't, and we're going to take over Babylon and we're going to get our freedom. Uh, Babylon didn't like that, and they uh, laid siege to all of Jerusalem, and uh, there's that. So Zedekiah uh, is is asking Jeremiah in this moment. He says, I want to know what the Lord has to say about our our kingdom. I want to know what the Lord has to say about what is going on. And so 
in chapter 23, Jeremiah is in the palace with King Zedekiah, giving him this word about, hey, you're not doing great. Before you didn't do great. All these kings before you, all these kings before you, this king before you, they didn't do great. The people are suffering. God's people are suffering, are in captivity because you as kings, as leaders of the people are not following God. And this is what Jeremiah is telling him. And then he gets to chapter 23 and verse six and he tells us that in his day, Judah will be saved. He's talking about the Messiah here. And Israel will live securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So these kings tried to save the people, save the kingdom by their own deeds, by doing what they sought and thought was right. And Jeremiah is saying, no, but a Messiah will come and he will be our righteousness. So if we wanna know what that looks like, we wanna know what that means for, for Jesus, for God, to, for Christ to be our righteousness, we're gonna, we're gonna flip out of the Old Testament and we're gonna go look in Philippians chapter three. So flip over with me to Philippians chapter three. Uh, Philippians is a book where Paul is writing to a church in Philippi and is discussing a lot of things. Um, And so I'm gonna read for us Philippians chapter three. We're gonna start in verse one. It says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But over whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as lost because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul is writing this letter to the church. And, and, I, and I wanna kind of put a picture in your mind of, of what we're gonna talk about. So a uh, majority of us in here have uh, a job, uh, somewhere where we get a paycheck. And, and I think we've probably all experienced that moment where our paycheck goes into the bank and then the very next day, our entire paycheck is gone because we have bills, right? And it's like, I did all this hard work and I put in all this effort and I got this and I put it in the bank and then it's gone and it's, it's somebody else's now. Um, we've all experienced that, but imagine for a moment that, that you took your paycheck and you put it in the bank. And then you took your next paycheck and you put it in the bank and you kept putting these checks in the bank and, and in your mind, you're keeping tally or in your checkbook. Does anybody have a checkbook anymore? No, okay. One hand, I saw one hand. All right, somebody's got a checkbook. You, you're keeping tally of everything that you're depositing into the bank. And then you go and you check your bank account online and instead of it showing what you thought or even showing zero, it shows a negative balance. 
You put in $150 and instead of being credited and given that $150, the bank says, no, I'm going to take $150 from you. And every time you put in money, the bank takes that money. You put in the money and the bank takes that money and your account begins to draw negative and negative and negative. But you're putting in all this work and you're putting in all this stuff. And the bank says, no, it's ours and we're gonna make it negative. So I want you to hold that picture in your mind, that idea of, of the thing that you put in is actually coming out and holding your account negative, okay? So in Philippians chapter three, uh, verse one, I'm gonna read it again. It says in verse one, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So Paul has spent two chapters, two chapters talking about how he's been imprisoned and how that we should live like Christ. Uh, summarizing Philippians chapter one and two, Paul went to prison, live like Christ. Paul went to prison, live like Christ. And then he starts in chapter three, he says, finally, now that I've talked about this, now that I've talked about how I went to prison, now that I've talked about all these things and told you to live in Christ, rejoice, woo, finally, rejoice. Because regardless of what he's been through, regardless of how difficult it is, for him to live like Christ or for anybody to live like Christ, he says, rejoice. And why do we rejoice? In the Lord. And so we are to rejoice regardless. We rejoice in the Lord and not in our circumstances. Paul, who, who talks about how he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, went to prison persecuted the church before that and tells his churches that he's set up to live like Christ. He says, rejoice in the Lord, not in the things that are happening. Rejoice in the Lord, not in how difficult the task is. Rejoice in the Lord, not in all these things in this world that are going on. Rejoice in the Lord, right? And then he goes on to say right after that, he says, to write the same thing again is no trouble for me and it is a safeguard for you. And now this is how we know that Paul was a pastor uh, because he says to write the same things is no trouble, right? And as pastors, we just tell you the same things over and over again, right? I, I constantly find myself on Wednesdays and as I'm preparing a lesson for the students, it's like, I feel like I talked about this before. I feel like I've, I've said the same lesson over and over again. And Paul says the same thing. He says, no, it's no trouble. It's good. It's a safeguard to you. So he starts out in chapter three. He says, rejoice in the Lord and be repetitive in scripture. The things of, of Christ, the things of, of God are not, it's not bad to continue to read again, continue to, to go over it again and again and again and again. He says, it's actually a safeguard for you. That repetition builds familiarity. Um, as somebody who grew up in the 90s, uh, I, can, I took a biology class in high school and I remember only one thing from biology class and that is that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, right? I don't know anything else about biology. I couldn't tell you what anything else does, but I know that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Why? Because they told me time and time again. That repetition is, has been good for me. When somebody needs to know what the mitochondria does, I will tell them. I will, I will have to, it's in me, I know. But that's what he's saying. He's saying it's no trouble. It's actually good. It's actually beneficial for you to hear these words again. 
It's actually beneficial to you and a safeguard to you to know the word of God and read it over and over again. Repetition of the word is vital to us. It's vital to us. <clears throat> the church we were in before we moved down to Corpus, um, we did life groups and we watched this video on uh, Right Now Media um, and, and the topic was about guardrails. And at the beginning of every video, the teacher would, we're going to talk about guardrails. A guardrail is blah, 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 blah. Next year, we're going to talk about guardrails. A guardrail is, and he would repeat the exact same thing over and over again to reiterate to us, to remind us what it is that we're studying, what it is that is important. And so Paul starts, chapter three, I've been in prison, live like God, live like Christ, rejoice in the Lord, repeat and be in scripture continuously. And then he gets into the, the really good stuff. In chapter, or verse two, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So in, in my translation, it says beware. Um, in other translations, it says watch out. Um, and, and I imagine at Paul is in this moment a, a lot a lot like how Greg is sometimes on Sunday mornings and he gets really loud and he's like, beware, watch out. And he's telling us to, to be on guard. He says, rejoice in the Lord, be repetitive in scripture, watch out, discern. He says, have discernment. He says, because I'm gonna tell you what's happening. He says, watch out for the dogs and when he says dogs, he's not talking about uh, your lab at home or your poodle or your chihuahua. He's talking about a dog that lives on the streets, that is diseased, that is a scavenger, that if you get too close, will probably bite you and give you rabies. He's talking about a dog that has malicious intent towards you. He says, watch out for the dogs. And, and when we look at that word, and, and I didn't write the actual word, but and we translate it in Greek, it means dog or it means impure man. Somebody who has impurity inside of them and is trying to put that upon you, to force that upon you. He says, watch out for the dogs. Uh, watch out for the evil workers and the false circumcision. And so what these people were doing is they were claiming, and this is why he talks about circumcision. They were claiming that if you wanna be a Christian, that you have to be circumcised on the eighth day, right? That was a big thing uh, back in the Old Testament that God set forth in his people to be circumcised, all the males in your household to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so these people, uh, these dogs, these evil workers are telling Christians, they're saying, if you want to be a Christian, if you really are a Christian, if you really have faith in Christ, if you really wanna follow him, you have to be circumcised on the eighth day. If you really wanna follow God, you have to also do this and you have to do this and you have to do these things. And so this is what Paul is writing to them about. He's saying, beware of these people, these people that are teaching a false circumcision. They are perverting the gospel. When they add something to the gospel, a requirement that we have to do, something that that gives us any sort of 
idea that we have attained salvation on our own merit, they're perverting the gospel. They're tainting it and perverting it. The law, which they are referring to, is not the gospel. In the Old Testament, they have all these rules, they have all these laws that, that the people had to follow and, and, and God set forth for them so that they would be set apart from the nations around them. And, and these people are saying, well, if you wanna be a follower of Christ, you must do all of these things. And it's not that these things are inherently bad, but they're adding this caveat that if you don't do these things, you can't be a follower of Christ. If you're not circumcised, you can't be a follower of Christ. They're adding these requirements to scripture. Romans chapter three, verses 19 and 20, it says this for us. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight for through the law comes knowledge of sin. So these people are trying to add these laws to follow Christ and says, you have to do these things to follow Christ. You have to do these things to be called a Christian. And they forget that the law is not intended to save us, to bring salvation to us. The law's purpose and what it does is it tells us and shows us that we are sinners and we are broken and that we are not enough. The law does not give us a a bench to stand on, a stool to stand on, to reach God, to reach his righteousness, to reach his holiness. Instead, it is something that keeps us from God and shows us that we are not enough. The law silences men and shows us our sin. Because if we can't keep every single iota of law, then we are not enough. Then we fall short. It doesn't make us clean. It doesn't make us righteous. It shows us that we're not enough. Um, and these are what the people were trying to do. This is what Paul is warning them about. It, if you've ever read Luke, uh, chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son. Um, and it's this story uh, where this man has two sons and he's got all this wealth and, and property. And one of the sons, the younger sons, approaches his father and he says, I want my inheritance now. And I wanna go do what I wanna do with it. And so the father gives him his, his inheritance and, and he goes and he squanders it in the world and, and he's gambling and he's doing all these different things with, with his inheritance. And he ends up living basically in a pigsty, eating what the pigs eat and, and he's living in squalor and he looks at his surroundings. He says, my father's servants are eating better than I am. I'm gonna go back to my father and I'm gonna confess what I've done and why it was wrong and, and hopefully and prayerfully he'll take me back. And so we have that story, that son, but we also have another son, we have the older son. And the older son doesn't take his inheritance. The older son stays at the father's place and he works in the fields and he helps with the servants and he's doing all these things. Um, and then when the younger son comes back, the father meets him in the road, runs out to him and, and hugs him and kisses him and gives him a robe and a ring and welcomes him back into the family and says, my son is back. 
And the older son is in the field working at the moment. And they, the, the father decides to throw a party for his son. Uh, he, he kills their, their best calf to, to throw a party that his son has returned. And, and the older son's in the field and he hears the commotion. And he asks one of the servants, he says, what's going on? He says, well, your brother has returned. They're throwing a party and they're rejoicing. And any one of us would imagine that the older son would be like, oh, my brother is back. But no, he's, he's frustrated and he's angry. And he walks up to his father and he's, he says, I've, I've worked for you tirelessly. I've, I've done everything that you've commanded me. I've done everything that you told me to do. I didn't walk away. I've been in your house for forever. And yet you won't even kill a calf for me and my friends. And you're gonna throw this giant party for our, my brother who walked away. And in this story, we often focus on the younger son, but in this story, both sons are lost. Both sons need their father and don't have a right understanding of who their father is. And I, 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 I picture the, the older, older son and I, I picture him walking up to his father and like poking him in the chest like, look, old man, look what I've done for you. Look at all this stuff that I've done. Look at everything that I've, I've worked hard for you. I've dedicated my life's work to you. And, and it's not enough. He's, he's basing his, his father's love for him on, on what he's done. He's basing his right standing with his father on what is outward. And we can see from the story that righteousness, the righteousness that we want, it's not outward. It's not something that, that is on the outside of us. Uh, I've heard before this, this phrase that, and, and I'm sure you've all heard it, that God helps those who help themselves. Has anybody heard that? God helps those who help themselves. What a load of baloney absolute baloney. We can't do anything to attain that righteousness. We can't do anything to attain that righteousness. Imagine, again, the younger son, and he's sitting in this pig pen, and he's, he's trying to, to take food from these pigs who are, are eating scraps and dead animal carcasses and all these different things. And, and, and the younger son's just there and he's, he's covered in mud and he's dirty and, uh, and, and life is just terrible for him because he's not in the presence of the father. And, and imagine for a moment that the older son finds him in this squalor and he walks over to the pig pen and he says, brother, try your best. Things will be all right. Try your best. What is that going to do for that younger son? It's going to do nothing for him. It's going to do absolutely nothing for him. Excuse me. He says, try your best, right? And this is what some people imagine the gospel is. This is what some people imagine... The gospel really is that if we just work hard enough, if we try hard enough, 
that if we tithe enough to the church, if we pray enough uh, in prayer groups, we go to life group enough, that we uh, come to church enough, that if we give enough to the homeless or we give enough to this charity or this charity, that we're a Christian. And they have this false sense of what Christianity, they have this false sense of what it really means to be a child of God. The gospel is not do your best. The gospel is your best is never enough. Never enough. We can't credit righteousness to anything that we have done. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, it tells us this, and this is again Paul writing to Timothy and um, and he's, again, writing about somebody who has added something to the gospel. And this is what he says in Second Timothy. He says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene among them. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He, he, he says, irreverent babble, and it's like gangrene. Now, I've never had gangrene. I... I Googled pictures of gangrene as I was preparing, and it's nasty, absolutely nasty. If you've ever um, known anybody or had it yourself, th- the process of, of this is that your flesh is, is dying. Um, often the, it's an appendage, whether it's your toes or your fingers or even an arm or leg or, or whatever, and, and if it's not an appendage, it's done on the inside, it's even worse, but these things are dying and, and your fingers and whatever has it turns black and the flesh and the cells are literally decaying in front of you. And so often the only way to to fix this, the only way to stop the spread of it is usually through cutting off of a limb, through amputation. You have gangrene in your fingers. If, If whatever medicine they're using doesn't stop it, which it normally doesn't, they have to amputate. Otherwise, it's going to spread even farther. That death, those dead cells are going to spread farther into your hand, maybe spread into your bloodstream and cause worse and worse problems. And, and this is what Paul says we should associate with people that are adding to the gospel. The gospel is that we are not enough and that Jesus Christ died for our sins and it's only through him that we can have salvation. To add anything to that is something that should be cut off immediately before it spreads and kills. That's harsh. That's intense. But it's necessary. In verse 3 in in Philippians, Paul talks about we are the true circumcision. In Jeremiah chapter 4, he says that circumcision is not an outwardly thing, that we should circumcise our hearts. He says, we as followers of Christ who have Christ inside of us, who have uh, put our faith and trust in him and allow him to, and, and, and he is leading and he's Lord and Savior of our life. We are the true circumcision, not because of any physical thing that we've done, but because our hearts have been circumcised to God. And, and it paints this picture of where is our heart? In, in verse four, nope, three, again it says, for we are true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
He talks about worship in the spirit of God. And, and I asked myself that question, why do I worship? Do I worship because I'm on staff at the church and I need to be here on Sunday mornings to make sure that everybody knows that the staff is in unison on Sunday mornings and, and in this church? Do I worship because I've grown up in church my entire life and that's just what I do? I go to church on Sunday mornings and I worship with the congregation. Do I worship because my wife plays the piano and if I'm not in here during worship, then I don't get to see her play piano and sing? No, I worship because um, I want to put on a good face and I want people to know that I'm holy and I'm righteous and I'm pure. Why do I worship? If the answer is anything other than because Christ is inside of me, then I'm not worshiping in the spirit of God. I'm worshiping in my flesh. We worship because Christ is inside of us. This whole idea of of adding to the gospel and things that we have to do. We don't do those things and attain salvation. Because we have salvation, we do those things. We don't obey the law and do what is right so that we become righteous. Because Christ is inside of us, we do those things. Because of who Christ is, we do those things. We put our pride in Christ Jesus and his death and nothing in our flesh. Verses four uh, through six, again, it says, although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised in the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. So Paul, again, Beware of these people who are adding to the gospel because you're not supposed to boast in your own stuff. You're supposed to have pride in who Jesus Christ is. But if anybody's gonna boast in their own stuff, Paul says, I can do it. Let me start naming these things that I've done. And I'll start with just my heritage. Oh, I'm of of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am from the people of God. I am. Oh, I'm a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I did all of these things. I went to school and I learned the law in the Old Testament. I became a Pharisee. I studied under some of the greatest Pharisees that you could ever know. And, and when the church started rising up and they were going against what the Pharisee says, I persecuted the church. As far as the law that, that holds, that teaches us that we are sinners, I'm borderline blameless. I followed it to the T. I crossed every T and dotted every I. He says, if anybody's going to be able to boast, I can do that. And then he goes on in verse 7, and he says, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as lost because of Christ. He says, Look at me and look at how great I am, and I count none of it as gain. In fact, it's a loss. That idea of our paycheck going into the bank and being taken away from us, creating our, making our account negative. He says, all these things that I worked so hard on, if that was what I was standing on, that's a loss for me. My righteousness is done at that point. Because no matter how much he did, how great he was, he doesn't compare to Christ. His righteousness doesn't compare to Christ. He goes on in verse eight and he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ. When he uses the word rubbish here, we think of trash and things that we're throwing away, but he's referencing back to dogs and he's literally saying that I count all this stuff as animal excrement is what one teacher put in his words, but he's talking about animal feces. He says, I count all of this as poop, as whatever, whatever word you want to use, whatever politically correct word you want to use for what animals excrete. That's what he says. He says, it's garbage. It's the lowest of the lows compared to Christ. He goes on in verse nine, and and this is this is it, verse nine. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. One day we will all stand before God. And every time I, I, I teach about standing before God or even read about it, I, I have flashbacks to the song by Carmen where they're in the courtroom and um, he's talking about being in the courtroom before God and, and, and Satan's just over there and he's like, well, he did this and he did this and he did that and he's throwing out all these things that he did. And Jesus is there and he says, I don't see any of that. He's with me. I've covered all of that. I've paid that price. That's what the gospel is. That's what it means to have the righteousness of Christ. To know that whatever sins I've committed, whatever good things I've done, and anywhere in between, that every single one of those things is a loss for me. That every single one of those things does not get me to heaven, does not get me righteousness, does not get me salvation, does not get me holiness, purity, doesn't make me clean. In fact, scripture tells us that even on our best day, we are like filthy rags compared to Christ. All of those things, good to bad, mean nothing if we do not have righteousness in Christ. If our merit before God is our own righteousness, away from me, I never knew you. If our merit before God is Christ's righteousness, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because we will stand before him And we'll either be clothed in our own righteousness or we'll be clothed in his. Jake, if y'all want to come up. The merit of Jesus Christ's blood, the blood that he shed for us, takes away our sin. My sin does not get taken away by animal sacrifices. My sin does not get taken away by anything good I've done. And the merit of Jesus Christ's perfect obedience to the law. Perfect obedience to God.
That is where my righteousness comes from. That is why God can look at me and see purity and see holiness and see righteousness. Not because of anything I've done, but because of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is so intense in his words to the people. And he calls people dogs and evil workers. And he's using this harsh language because it's so important. Because if we add anything to the gospel, no matter how good it looks, no matter how easy it sounds, no matter how great it makes us feel, we add anything to the gospel outside of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, that is not of God. And so just as Paul warns his, his church, this church that he's writing to, to beware, to, to watch out, we as well should beware and watch out for those that are dogs and evildoers that seek to destroy the kingdom of God because they're out there still. How do we do that? We trust and we put our faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We repeat scripture to ourselves and we hold it in our hearts and we know what God's word says. Because Jehovah said, can you? Because he is our righteousness. Jesus Christ, our righteousness. So my question for you as you go out, for yourself, for your family, for your friends, when you stand before God, whose righteousness do you want him to see? You want him to see your righteousness? You want him to see the righteousness of your parents, your grandparents, your friends, your life group, your pastor? Or do you want him to see the righteousness of Christ? As we worship here in a second, I'm gonna be down here. I'm gonna ask some of our other leaders in the church to come up front. If you wanna know what it looks like to have the righteousness of Christ in your life, come pray with one of us. Come talk with one of us. If you need prayer for anything, come and pray with one of us.